Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. The Peter Schiff Show. So far, we've had a lot of volatility the first three trading days of this week. On Monday, the Dow opened positive and had a bit of a rally, I forget, over 100 points, I think. And then all of a sudden, we sold off down 500 points. The transports, I think, were the weak link first. They actually took out their October low. The Dow was hanging in there until it rolled over, too, and it took out its October low. But then instead of just really collapsing at that point, the market rallied back and found some support at those lows. The Dow actually rallied back into positive territory. It managed to eke out a 35-point gain or something like that. And of course, the media, the financial media was all over this turnaround. Aha, the bottom is in. That's the end of it. You got to buy. This is it. I mean, this turnaround shows that, you know, we've had capitulation. We've washed everybody out. We haven't even come close. All we did is bounce off the most recent low. And in the case of actually both indexes, we took out the lows before we bounced. And that's even a weaker sign than had we not pierced the lows uh, at all. But the uh, positive momentum carried on into Tuesday's open, where the Dow rallied better than 350 points right out of the gate. And then it rolled over and dropped uh, better than 500 points. We were down about 200 points. So what a 550-point uh, sell-off. Then we rallied back. We rallied back into positive territory, but then ended up closing down 50 points. So between Monday and Tuesday, the Dow was actually down.
Now, today, we had another big rally right out of the gate. A lot of this has to do with some kind of optimism on some positive resolution to the trade tension with China. And right off the bat, the Dow was up better than 450 points. But we couldn't hold on to all those gains. The Dow dropped about, what, 300 points from its highs. We closed up just above 150 points. So maybe out of the entire, what, three-day period of volatility, maybe the Dow eked out a gain of a little better than 100 points while putting in new lows. And I think this is going to continue. In fact, look at the financials, which again, you know, a lot of the financials were down today. They couldn't even rally. Even when the Dow was way up, they had modest gains. And then many of them, like Goldman Sachs, closed negative again on the day. You know, um, Deutsche Bank, which I've talked about many, many times, hit new uh, you know, lows for the move yesterday. And today it was up, had like an 8% jump, I think, on rumors of a merger with another bank to kind of shore it up. But before that, I mean, it was leading the financials lower on the other side of the pond. But, you know, we were getting killed over here. If the financials are sick, what is that telling you about the overall economy and the overall market? Because this is a financial a market. It's a financial bubble. It's all about credit and cheap money. And so the financials were at the epicenter of this bubble. I mean, that's why the financials uh, took so much of a beating in 2008. I mean, that's why they had to be bailed out uh, because they were extending all the credit. And they, of course, were the biggest casualties when the credit dried up and the loans went bad and the bubble popped. And that's exactly what is happening now. We are in the early stages of this uh, bubble popping. And that's why if you look now at a lot of the mainstream uh, forecasts, all of a sudden they're all incorporating recession. I mean, the probability of recession is now uh, very high over the next couple of years. I mean, I read JP Morgan now is saying that there's a 70% probability that the U.S. is in recession uh, by the end of 2020. In fact, most of the forecasts I'm looking at now predict that the U.S. will either enter recession next year or in the following year. And this is a huge change from where people were just a few months ago when there were no recessions as far as the eye can see. Now we're staring them in the face. One thing that really hasn't changed so much is that you have all this optimism that still abounds. I mean, it doesn't make sense to me that People could be so optimistic about an economy that they concede is so close to recession. Now, I think on Tuesday, we did get a drop in small business confidence, right? It's the third consecutive monthly drop. And three months ago, small business confidence hit an all-time record high. But if you have more of these small business owners thinking that we're a year away from recession, and in fact, less than a year. If you think recession is going to start in 2019, I mean, we're going to be in 2019 in a few weeks. So if you think recession is so close, I mean, how much longer can you remain so confident? Confident about what? I mean, the economy doesn't have much longer uh, before it hits recession. So to the extent that you were confident, you thought you were going to make money, well, your window of opportunity to make money is going to rapidly close. So I think the confidence numbers are going to catch up with these forecasts now 
of recession. Now, of course, the Fed doesn't have recession in its forecast. I mean, not even close. Obviously, you know, the Trump administration, nobody in Congress as the national debt is careening towards 22 trillion. And these guys are putting out their, you know, their rosy uh, estimates of uh, economic growth. They're not starting to factor in these recession forecasts that are becoming uh, more and more mainstream. You know, the problem for the Federal Reserve is, you know, they're trying to uh, keep this bubble from imploding, but the task is impossible because enough air has already come out of it. Interest rates have already risen to the point where, you know, the camel's back has been broken. I mean, I, that was the title of one of my earlier podcasts, the last time the Fed hiked rates. And I was like, the, 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 rate, the, the hike that breaks the camel's back. And I think that's exactly what they've done. And, you know, the Fed is now, of course, they've backtracked into admitting that we're just slightly below neutral, right? We're one more rate hike away from neutral, even though one more rate hike will still leave the Fed funds rate in negative territory in real terms, not in nominal terms. But if you accept the government's inflation numbers and we got CPI and PPI numbers that came out yesterday and today, the uh, the headline numbers were helped, right? They're not as bad because oil prices have come down. But if you look at the core, we've got the hottest core in seven years. Uh, and obviously, the, the move down in oil prices is not sustainable if we get a move down in the dollar. So that's just some temporary relief. Uh, but if the Fed is going to be more concerned about the core, I mean, the core is hot and getting a lot hotter. But even if you take the government's inflation numbers, and apply them to the Fed funds, it's negative. And of course, you know, when you earn interest, you have to pay taxes on the nominal rate. So the after-tax yield on government money is very negative right now. Yet the Fed is trying to pass off negative after-tax yields, even negative pre-tax yields, as if these uh, these rates are neutral or normal and, and they're anything but. You know, they are highly stimulative, but of course, the Federal Reserve needs to maintain high amount of stimulus if it wants to prevent the bubble from popping. Now, it's not going to work. The air is going to come out anyway, but the Fed is trying to delay the day of reckoning as long as it can. But the best thing it could do for the long-term health of the economy would be to allow the bubble to pop. You see, the reason that they have to keep interest rates so low is because they want to enable the enormity of debt, right? In order to keep the, the, the illusion going that we can service or repay the debt, they have to keep interest rates so low. You know, people keep saying, well, why can't we just normalize rates? I mean, what's so bad about 2%? Why can't it go 3 4 5%? You know, we had those rates in the past. We did. We had those rates in the past when we had a lot less debt. But when you have to pay that amount of interest on a much larger pool of debt, you just don't have the ability to do it. So in order to make the debt manageable, the Fed is keeping rates at such a low level and claiming that this level is now the new neutral. But if interest rates stay this low, we're never going to have a real economy because you have negative interest rates. Nobody's going to save. I mean, why would you save if the return on savings is negative? So we're not going to have any savings. We're not going to get any real economic growth. We're not going to get any capital investment. So it, we're just going to continue to implode. 
Now, if the Fed wants to allow interest rates to return to a level that is consistent with savings and investment, well, then obviously they have to let rates go up a lot higher. But that means that a lot of the debt that we already took on is unsustainable and it needs to be defaulted on, which is what has to happen. I would much rather see a lot of debt defaulted so that the overall total level of debt comes down to a manageable level because a lot of the loans are not repaid and a lot of the lenders, you know, don't get their money back, right? We have a lot of bankruptcies. We delever the economy. And now interest rates can rise to a level high enough to facilitate and encourage more savings and more investment, right? Yes, there'll be a lot of losses based on the credit bubble. I mean, that's what's going to have to happen. The losses are inevitable one way or another. Uh, And that would be a very painful process, especially for the people who would absorb all those losses and a lot of people who would get caught in the crossfire because they would lose their jobs. But this is a necessary part of the painful restructuring. Now, if, you know, we, if the Fed didn't want the economy to have to go through this pain, then they shouldn't have, you know, uh, jacked it up with all this cheap money. They shouldn't have done the crime if they weren't willing to do the time. And of course, the time is going to be done by other people. The crime was uh, QE1, QE2, QE3, 0% interest rates. So once they committed that crime, uh, you know, the, the, the economic, you know, time was inevitable. But they don't want to do that, right? They don't want to facilitate, bring about this collapse of debt and all the losses. So in order to, to keep that from happening, they keep interest rates artificially low. But that means we never really restructure the economy. We never get the savings and investment that we need to actually grow the economy. All they're trying to do is reflate the bubble. And that's not going to work. In fact, I was reading this article today uh, that the Federal Reserve now has a negative net worth to the tune of $66 billion. Now, what does that mean if the Fed has a negative net worth? Well, obviously, it means it's broke, its liabilities exceed its assets. Now, a lot of people don't even know what the Federal Reserve's liabilities are. People don't even know that the Federal Reserve has liabilities. They do. The liabilities are the Federal Reserve notes in circulation, right? If you take out a dollar bill or five or 10 from your wallet and read it, Right. Read what it says. It says this note is legal tender right, for all debts, public and private. So it claims to be a note. This note, it's a note. Right. A note is a liability. Now, back in the olden days, when the Federal Reserve issued legitimate, honest notes, if you read the, the writing on a Federal Reserve note, it would say this Federal Reserve note is lawful money or legal tender, redeemable in gold or silver, you know, at a Federal Reserve bank. And so what the Federal Reserve was obligated to pay you was gold and silver or dollars, right? Some of the notes read that, you know, we'll pay dollars, which were, of course, also backed by gold and silver. So it was a note. And the Federal Reserve owed you something when you had one of its notes. Now, of course, now it's an IOU nothing. The Federal Reserve doesn't have to give you anything. If you have a $10 bill or a $20 bill, right, a $20 bill used to get an ounce of gold out of the Fed. What does a $20 bill get you now? Nothing. You can get two tens, you can get four fives, or you can get 21s. But you don't really get anything. You're just changing one denomination of note for another denomination of note. So it's a note that never actually has to be paid. It doesn't obligate the Federal Reserve to do anything, which is why it's not even really a note. I mean, it's really nothing. But on its face, it claims to be a note, right? It doesn't claim to be a dollar. If you read the bill, it, it, it has the word, you know, $1 or $10 written on it. 
But I mean, there's also a picture of George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. You know, that doesn't mean that the note is Abraham Lincoln just because there's a picture of Abraham Lincoln. So just because the word dollar is written there, it doesn't mean that the note itself is a dollar because it doesn't say this dollar is legal tender. It says this note is legal tender. It's not a dollar. It's a note. It used to be an IOU promising to pay dollars, but it never was the dollar itself. And it still isn't because it doesn't even claim that it's a dollar. It claims it's a note. So that note is a liability of the Federal Reserve. So all those notes out there, all the money that they've printed, those are their notes. And of course, a lot of the money isn't printed. They just create deposits out of thin air. So the liability doesn't have to exist in physical form. If they create a bank deposit and fill it up with Federal Reserve notes, which we call dollars, uh, then those are its liabilities. So those liabilities, what are the assets of the Federal Reserve? Well, the assets are predominantly U.S. Treasury bonds, but they also have mortgage-backed securities and they have other assets that they have purchased with the notes that they have created out of thin air. So they have assets and they have liabilities. Now, if they have a positive net worth, which they did for quite some time, that means if you add up the value of all their assets, they exceed the value of all their liabilities. Well, today, if you add up the value of all their assets, you get a smaller number than their liabilities. So the Fed is broke. Now, what does that mean? I mean, most people think it means nothing. Who cares if they're broke? Because their liabilities don't actually obligate them to pay anything, right? If you have, if you write a bunch of checks that no one can cash, what difference does it make how many you write? Here is the problem, and here is why it is such a big problem for the U.S. economy and for the Fed and for the dollar that the Federal Reserve is insolvent. And it's going to get more and more insolvent as interest rates continue to rise because what is driving the loss of assets is the collapse of bond prices because the Federal Reserve has a lot of longer-term treasuries thanks to Operation Twist, right? They twisted out all the short ends. And so the Fed is probably the biggest holder of long-term uh, U.S. Treasuries. And as interest rates go up, the current value of those Treasuries falls. And that's the problem because they're on the Fed's uh, books. Now, where it becomes a big problem is, let's say inflation really starts to run out of control, which it's going to. And the Federal Reserve, in order to shore up the dollar and prevent runaway inflation, the Fed needs to start shrinking the balance sheet. It has to start retiring its notes, right? Well, how does it do that? Well, the opposite of the way uh, it acquired its assets and put the notes into circulation. The Federal Reserve has to sell its assets for its own notes, right? So let's say it sells $100 billion of treasuries into the market, and the buyers of those treasuries give the Fed $100 billion Federal Reserve notes, a.k.a. dollars. Right now, the Fed has its liabilities back, and it tears them up. Right? It, it takes that money out of circulation. It shrinks the money supply in order to fight inflation and support the value of the dollar. But if interest rates have risen sharply and the value of those long-term bonds have collapsed, when the Fed goes to sell the bonds, it's not going to get 100 cents on the dollar, which is what it paid. It might only get 30 cents on the dollar, which means the Fed could run out of assets to sell and now it won't be able to buy up its liabilities if it doesn't have anything to sell. It has to be able to pay the holder. It, it has to give them an asset in exchange for its notes. And if the assets don't have the value, then it's impossible for the Federal Reserve to sufficiently shrink 
money supply. It can't take its notes out of circulation if it has insufficient collateral, insufficient assets to sell with which to take back its notes. And so that means the Fed is impotent. It can't do anything. It has basically permanently increased the money supply with no conceivable way to withdraw that liquidity, even if it needs to do that. So this is a very, very vulnerable position that the Federal Reserve is in. Of course, another thing that people overlook is when the Fed was making a bunch of money off of its balance sheet, it was returning these checks to the U.S. Treasury, right? The U.S. Treasury was counting that income as revenue, and that was helping to keep the deficits, which are you know enormous, they were lower than they otherwise would be. But now that the Fed is losing money, instead of sending you know the Treasury a check, it's going to send the Treasury a bill. Because many, many years ago, you know, sometime after the financial crisis, there was a law that was passed that basically put the U.S. government on the hook for any money the Federal Reserve lost. And the Federal Reserve is about to lose a fortune. And obviously, the U.S. taxpayer is on the hook. But of course, where is the U.S. taxpayer supposed to get the money to bail out the Fed, in theory, from the Fed? But of course, that doesn't that can't work, right? They can't bail themselves out. So we are we are headed to a major crisis. And of course, more and more people, when they look at an insolvent central bank, right, the central bank that is issuing the world's reserve currency is itself insolvent. That also creates just a a public relations problem. And it, it is a it is a sharp reminder to the world and our creditors of the precarious position in which the United States is in, and it's going to help uh, you know, uh, remove whatever confidence may remain in, in the U.S. dollar or probably the independence of the Federal Reserve. Now, of course, next week, the Federal Reserve is going to announce whether or not it's going to hike rates in December. And the odds of a December rate hike, last I checked, have come down to about 71%, and they were quite a bit higher. I mean, it was pretty much a sure thing and now, I mean, it's not 100% a sure thing, obviously 71%. So the odds are that the Fed is going to raise rates. And I think they're going to because I think it is too risky for the Fed not to. But I think the Fed is pretty much damned that they do and damned that they don't with respect to the market. I think if the Fed follows through with a December rate hike, which is what the market anticipates, I think the market's not going to like that. Uh, because rates will be even higher than they are now. And the rates are a problem now. It's a problem for the housing market. It's a problem for the auto market. So if the Fed makes the problem worse, that's a bad thing. And of course, there still is a 30% chance about that the Fed won't hike rates. And so maybe you know that 30% has to be priced out. So I think the markets will sell off if the Fed hikes rates, even if they try to make it a soft, dovish hike by kind of dialing back expectations for future hikes, because I think those expectations have already been dialed back. So I'm not really sure what the Fed could do absent not raising rates at all in December. That would kind of change the dynamic, which brings me to the other alternative for the Fed, which is they don't raise rates. And I think if they don't raise rates, I actually think that's going to be worse for the markets than if they do raise rates. I mean, I think it's bad either way. But I think if they don't raise rates, it's even worse. Now, it's possible that the initial knee-jerk reaction to the Fed not hiking could be a rally, right? But I don't think that rally will be sustainable. In fact, it may not be sustainable even for that day. Of course, we don't get the decision until like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So the market only has a couple of hours in which to trade. So maybe we'll close positive that day. 
but we may not be able to hold on to those gains the following day or the following week for a couple of reasons. One, I think if the Fed doesn't hike in December, the markets are going to start to speculate, why didn't they hike? And one reason is going to be that there's a bigger problem out there that they're worried about. That, oh my God, I mean, everybody thought the Fed was going to hike rates and then they abruptly decided not to. What do they know? What new information do they have that the rest of us don't have? God, they must really be worried about something. And that's going to worry investors, right? If they think the Fed is worried, then they're going to be worried. And so that's a potential negative. The other uh, potential problem is what if people think, wait a minute, the Fed was all ready to hike rates and now they just decided not to? I mean, what happened? Was that political pressure? Was it the Trump administration? Did they finally wear down the Fed? And if so, now all of a sudden there is a big question as to the the independence of the Fed. If people start to think that the Fed was going to hike, but for political reasons and as a result of political pressure, they didn't hike, well, then that's also a negative. And of course, all these potential negatives for the markets are huge potential positives for gold. Now, gold has not been moving up. I mean, it hasn't been moving down. It's been banging up against 1250, and it hasn't been able to get through. But silver, silver's starting to move. It had a nice update today up about, I think, 17, 18 cents. Look at that gold-silver ratio. Now starting to break in favor of silver, meaning that the price of silver is rising relative to the price of gold, which is a bullish sign for both gold and silver. Because if we're going to have a bull market in gold, then silver should be outperforming. And this little bit of a break in the price of silver, a breakout, I think is is bullish. But if the Fed doesn't hike, that is unmistakably bullish for gold, right? Because if the market thinks, oh, the Fed didn't hike because they're worried about a big problem, well, that's good for gold, right? If there's a big economic problem coming, uh, that's good for gold. And the failure to deliver a hike that has been priced into the price of gold has to be priced out bullish for gold. And of course, if people believe that this is politically motivated, that the Trump administration got to the Fed and got their minds right and talked them out of a hike that they thought was you know, prudent and thought was uh, something that the economy needed, but they sacrificed that for political expediency, that means the Fed is losing its independence. That is very, very bullish for gold. So I think regardless that the Fed doesn't hike rates, that is very, very bullish for gold. But even if they do hike rates, that could be bullish for gold because I think that rate hike, the specter of that rate hike, is one of the reasons that gold's not getting bought. But I think, again, buy the rumor, sell the fact, that should be bullish for gold. And, of course, uh, if the Fed does then set the stage for a one-and-done type thing, and I do believe, based on what they're saying, even if they raise rates in December, that they're probably never going to raise them again this cycle, and the next move is going to be a cut. And I think if they don't raise in December, that means the last rate hike already happened. Because if they don't raise in December, the next thing they're going to do is they're going to cut rates. And I think the first cut is not going to be 25 bips. The first cut is going to be all the way to zero. That's how fast the Fed is going to have to react to an imploding problem. They're going to go, you know, zero to 50, you know, you know, in three seconds. They're going to go right to zero. The question is, are they going to try to go beyond zero and move into the twilight zone of, of negative interest rates? So 
All of this then is going to be uh, bullish for gold. And maybe when gold breaks to the upside, when gold breaks out, maybe that'll be the next leg down uh, for the cryptocurrencies, for Bitcoin. I mean, if you've been paying attention, Bitcoin's now kind of trading in a new range. I guess the low end of the range is about 3,200. The high end, about 3,600. Most of the trading seems to be in the 3,300, 3,400 range. That's where we are. We keep walking the range down uh, the market bases until it exhausts the new buyers and then selling pushes it to new lows. And, and so, you know, the whole time it, it stops falling, you've got all these people talking about a bottom. It's a buying opportunity, time to step up. It's just the market kind of biding its time, suckering in new longs, uh, getting ready for the next breakdown. And obviously a breakout in gold, real gold, could be a catalyst for the next move down in, in fool's gold. You know, speaking about fools, Janet Yellen was out uh, warning about the possibility now of another financial crisis, which I really think is rich. Uh, because last year, last year, Janet Yellen came out and said that in her opinion, there was not going to be another financial crisis in our lifetimes. I mean, she didn't just say her own lifetime. It was like in our lifetimes. And so, I mean, in, in my kids' lifetimes, I mean, that is a bold statement. There's not going to be another financial crisis in our lifetimes. And again, remember, a lot of people mistakenly believe that Janet Yellen predicted the last crisis, right? Because that's how she was billed. I mean, when Obama appointed her as chairman of the Federal Reserve, at the press conference, he basically said she was sounding the alarm. She was warning about a crisis and nobody listened, right? As, as, like she was Peter Schiff. She didn't warn about anything. I mean, I proved that. If you haven't seen my uh, Janet Yellen exposed video, it's in two parts. I went over all of her speeches that the people who you know think she's so great and who credit her for having predicted the crisis, I went to the very speeches that people claim she predicted it, and I dissected them. And I showed that not only did she not predict it, she actually said the people who were predicting it were wrong, that there was no chance, that there was nothing to worry about, that everything was great, that there was no housing bubble, that even if housing prices unexpectedly fell, which she didn't think was going to happen, it wouldn't matter because housing was a small part of the economy. She was completely clueless. And in fact, in interviews that she gave on her own before she was nominated as Fed chairman, because she was, you know, head of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. But she had plenty of interviews where she admitted, admitted that she knew nothing and she was completely caught off guard, completely uh, surprised by the financial crisis. Yet knowing that, she allowed Obama to heap praise on her that she knew she didn't deserve. But she kept her mouth shut and everyone wanted to pretend that this woman, right, was the one that saw the crisis. Like all these men couldn't see it. But this woman, right, like as if, you know, her being a woman gave her, you know, some special uh, ability uh, to make better forecasts. Right. So nobody wanted to question the idea that this woman knew what none of these men knew. But it was all a bunch of nonsense. But anyway, so last year she comes out and she says, we're never going to have another financial crisis. Everything is fine. Right. Of course, when she said that, I mean, I, I talked about it on my podcast and I said completely clueless. You know, she's wrong. Well, now she's coming out and she said she's worried that another crisis is coming. And she's finally right. This is the first time in her career she's going to be right. She says she's worried a crisis is coming, and it's going to come. But she's right for the wrong reasons. If you go and read what she wrote or what she said about why we might have a crisis, it was basically because 
we don't have enough regulation, like somehow blaming it on Trump and that, look, you know, we the progress we were making on regulating the banks and regulating corporations or whatever, that this process has been somehow watered down. And now she's worried that without the proper regulation, we have all this corporate debt, right? She's not worried about government debt or any of that, but just this corporate debt, right? Because that's, you know, part of the, oh, the, the, the free market and all this free wielding deregulation and tax cutting going around that, oh, there's there's all this corporate debt. And now she's worried that this might bring on a financial crisis. Now, so she's wrong. She's wrong about why, what's going to cause the crisis. But she's finally right that a crisis is coming. But I want to finish up the podcast today by talking about yesterday's press conference, which was really kind of more of an ambush where it was in the Oval Office. And a lot of you probably saw it. But President Trump was there and he was sitting next to Vice President Pence and he invited Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer were there. And supposedly they were going to negotiate something. I mean, uh, some kind of budget resolution. But they had all the reporters there. And it was like a live press conference. And it really was extremely confrontational where Trump basically said, hey, I'm going to shut down the government proudly. Uh, over the issue of the wall like we need the money for the wall and if you guys don't appropriate the money for the wall if that money is not included in whatever budget I get sent well I'm not going to sign it I'm going to shut down the government and I'm going to be proud to do it because I'm going to do it for a worthy cause I'm going to do it over money for the wall Uh, Now, first of all, this thing is so ridiculous. I mean, shut down the government. The whole concept of a government shutdown, when it first came, right, the first government shutdown was after the 2010 elections, when you had the Tea Party, right, when you had all these Republicans got elected. And that's the year that I ran. I didn't make it, but Rand Paul got elected. And a lot of other uh, Tea Party type guys got elected in 2010. And what was galvanizing the Tea Party were the deficits, the out of control deficits. It wasn't just Obamacare. In fact, Obamacare was kind of what was the impetus for the 2013 right shutdown effort. But we know we need to repeal Obamacare. But the initial shutdown was to you know stop the deficit from exploding. And remember, all that you have to do is just not raise the debt ceiling. I mean, that was one of the issues that I campaigned on when I ran, was that if I was in the Senate, I was going to lead the filibuster not to increase the debt ceiling because that would stop all the spending right there. If you couldn't borrow the money, then you couldn't spend it. But the Tea Party and these congressmen were going to try to force Obama to cut spending. Now, of course, they could cut spending right now if they wanted to, right? They got a Republican president. The Republicans control the House and the Senate. They could cut spending if they want to. The problem is they don't want to. They didn't want to then, and they don't want to now. It's just that back then they could pretend that they wanted to because they knew it was going to happen. And one way they were able to you know, get a, you know, a lot of publicity and score a lot of points with their base was to force the government shutdown if we didn't get some kind of control on spending. Like, we're not going to pass a budget if we don't uh, make some cuts to government spending. Now, that was actually a, a worthwhile reason. I mean, shutting down the government to force Obama and the Democrats to cut spending would be a, a valid reason to shut it down. I mean, I think it would be worth whatever short-term pain. Now, unfortunately, ironically... 
the government ends up spending more money when it's shut down than when it's not shut down. I mean, that's been the irony of it. Like, basically, when you shut down the government, it doesn't shut down, first of all, because you still have to abide by all the rules and regulations. You still have to pay all the taxes, right? You just don't get the so-called benefits that you're paying for. Like, if they shut down the national parks, right, you can't go to Yellowstone. But what's crazy is when they shut down the national parks, they have more people, more government workers preventing you from accessing the park because it's shut down than were on the job when the park was open. So the whole thing is a joke. They end up spending more money when the government is shut down than when it's fully operational. But if there was an actual government shutdown that was more than just, you know, smoke and mirrors to scare people, right? If they actually shut down the government, it would be worthwhile shutting it down for a purpose of shrinking government. But at this moment, the Republicans don't have to shut down the government to shrink government. They just have to shrink it. They control the House. They control the Senate. And they have the White House. They could just cut government spending. The problem is they don't want to cut it. But now to talk about shutting down the government because you don't get more government spending, Donald Trump is saying, if I don't get extra money for the wall... I'm going to shut down the government? I mean, this is all nonsense. First of all, how much do they think it's going to cost to build a wall? I mean, the defense budget now, Trump is asking for $750 billion for the defense budget. I mean, can't they put the wall in there somewhere? I mean, isn't that part of defense? If you think, you know, you have to defend the nation by building a wall, well, out of a $750 billion defense budget, there's not enough room to build a wall for a couple of billion dollars. You're going to shut the government down over that? And, of course, can't they find the money somewhere else? I mean, can't the Republicans find one thing that they're willing to cut and then, you know, use that money for the wall? Of course, nobody bothers to point out that when Donald Trump ran for office, Mexico was going to pay for the wall. Well, I mean, why don't they send a bill to Mexico? I mean, why doesn't anybody talk about the fact that the Mexicans aren't paying for the wall? I mean, that was a campaign promise. I mean, I remember, you know, Saturday Night Live did a pretty funny skit uh, about what it would be like if Trump won. Of course, this was before he won, I think, and nobody thought he had the possibility of winning. But one of the scenes, the president of Mexico came down to the White House to visit the president, and he said, hey, here's a check for the wall, and just handed him the money. Like, oh, great, you won. Now here's your check for the wall. Where is that check? Obviously, the Mexicans are not going to pay for the wall. Uh, so we've got to pay for the wall. But the Democrats refuse to provide funding for the wall. And this, we're supposed to shut down the government. Now, of course, the, the Democrats claim that they want border security. They just want a secure border without a wall. And then you have Donald Trump claiming that it's impossible to have border security without the wall, which I don't believe. I mean, I think we could have it without the wall. And, you know, my biggest opposition to the wall, the main reason I don't want a wall is the same reason I didn't want a wall in 2010 when people used to ask me about that. It's not like building a wall was a brand new thing that Donald Trump invented. I mean, it's been something that's been there for a long time. And Donald Trump just jumped on that because he knew that it was the key hot button issue with a lot of conservatives who really think our problems are due to the immigrants. And so we want to keep him out with a wall. But I was, you know, asked if I was in favor of a wall in, in 2010. And I said, no, I don't want a wall. And the main reason that I always gave for not wanting a wall was not that I had a problem with keeping illegal immigrants out. I mean, I didn't. I mean, I, you know, I'm for, you know, I'm for legal immigration. I want to make it easier for people to come here legally, especially people who are going to come here and work. 
people who have skills that we need or people who are just going to, you know, contribute to hard labor. They're going to go out and do jobs that a lot of Americans don't want to do. I think that's great. I don't like people coming in here to go on welfare. In fact, I don't like people who already live here being on welfare. See, I'm not just upset about illegal immigrants getting welfare and food stamps. I'm upset about any Americans getting welfare and food stamps. So I'd like to eliminate it for everybody. Not say, hey, these programs are just for people who are born here. I don't think they're for anybody. So I think if we turn off the magnets, then people won't come here unless they're willing to work. I mean, I don't want people coming here uh, to get welfare, but I don't want people staying here to get welfare. Hey, if you want welfare, leave, right? Find some other country that's dumb enough uh, to pay you for doing nothing. So I I, I want to get rid of that completely. But the main reason that I didn't want the wall was not because I'm in favor of illegal immigration. What I was worried about is ultimately what that wall would be used for. Because once the wall is there, it doesn't necessarily have to be used to keep the Mexicans out. It could end up being used to keep the Americans in. See, I don't like the government having that kind of power because I know that things are going to get really bad in this country. And I know taxes are going to get jacked up really high. And there are going to be a lot of people that want to leave, that don't want to pay those high taxes, that don't want to be on the hook for decades or generations of IOUs that were built up before they were even old enough to vote. And what if the government doesn't want young people leaving? What if they want to force them to stay here so they can keep taxing them, right? Well, how do they do that? Well, they make it illegal to leave. And obviously, if there's a wall on the border, then it makes it harder for you to escape. You know, I mean, there was a big wall, you know, between East Germany and West Germany. And yeah, you know, I mean, the wall was there to keep the East Germans in. That's why it was built. I mean, most, uh, you know, these countries, they build walls. It's to keep their own people in, right? Because under socialism, right, you vote with your feet, you leave. And the way you keep people from leaving is you, you build a wall. And if they try to climb over the wall, you shoot them down. And I don't know that this is actually ever going to happen, but I don't even want the possibility. I don't want that wall there. Because if it's there, then, you know, it's another tool of oppression that can ultimately be used by the U.S. government against its own citizens. That's why you've got to always be careful what you wish for. You've got to be careful about giving the government extra power, right? Because that power is going to be used against you, right? Any force, any power that you give the government to use against other people, once they have that power, they can turn right around and use it against you. Oh, 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 oh,